but I'm sure that whatever he wants to say is probably very sensitive and useful. Yeah, I want to hear too. Yes. Um, all right, all right. What? Yeah, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to see you. Nobody yeah. <laughs> kissed you through the screen. Um, okay. So, okay. Does anybody else have anything to say about awkward and taking shit out? Nope. Um, okay. Going once, going twice. Um, how about what, and this is a good thing to do now, what works? <laughs> I love the fucking title. And then I'm going to shut up now and let everybody else talk. Because <laughs> right. I have, you know, I can say other shit, but I don't want to take up time for people. I like the um, sort of surrealistic magic realism of the part of the first part of it. And then again, like how it could dovetail into the, the two uncles. And uh, yeah, that, that's, that's really working for me as a story. So, and I also, I like what Pam said too about just, um, yeah, just make it what more, yeah, just cut to the chase and, and just, yeah do away with the similes and just, just have it be a little bit more muscular and, and um, direct and to the point. It's, it's great premise. Great premise. Do you think it would work better? Well, I'm going to get that later, but do you think it would work better if everything was poetry? Yeah. Well, do what do you think? It was all, because I kind of went into prose like halfway through <laughs> and then went back into kind of like verse, if that makes sense. Like, like the first bit was all worked, like it was like notes that I'd worked and, and wrote like as a poem and then the rest of it, yeah. just like I wanted to finish it. Yeah, I like that part. Yeah. I like the first part. Yeah. I think you can go either way, quite yeah. honestly, you know. I think, you know, it all kind of depends and there's even prose poetry, but, you know, I guess it depends on how heavy you want to be on. Try not to have dead air here at Mutiny Radio. Just got a call from Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth. Gonna. I don't know why I said to the Oh, she is. Right, here you Can you hear me? You are. All right. Hello. Oh, hi. Hi. What's up? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Hey, well, here we are at two. What time is it? I. Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo. It's two or three. We were the, the poetry reading went over. They um can't keep it succinct. I didn't get to read either today. I was a little bummed because there was time for me, and then this other guy went. Everyone knows you're only supposed to have seven minutes, and this one guy was like, "Oh, I don't know if I want to read." And then he read, and he read for thirteen minutes. I was like, "Have you any concept of time?" Anyways, poets are so, so you pretentious, and it's it's, you, it's wonderful. You would have got sixty seconds. Well, it's fine. I didn't need to read my poem. It's not like I don't have as much time as I want. I mean, I should give I should I give give the time to the other people. They need it more than I do. But I was still like, ugh, I could have been able to read my work. And there was some really good work on on, on today. And then some of it was 
I mean, it's always an interesting reading, and it's always fun to see what's happening with people that are in poetry school. Um, you know, this many years, I've what I've been out of poetry school for ten years now, so that's cool. Um, wow, time flies. Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth. Hello. Good afternoon. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Yeah. Uh, this is the day usually where you will see people act up and get drunk. You know, they use Cinco de Mayo as the same thing, same way as St. Patrick's Day. All right. A yes. reason why to cultural appropriation get drunk. drunkenness. Yeah, of course. There you go. That's it. That's yeah. thank you, Pam. No problem. That's, that's what I was looking for. Cultural appropriation for drunkenness. Hell yeah. Thank you. I'm, hey, I'm down with it. I'm 100%. I'm, well, I mean, I just like to drink. But am I going to be drinking Takate today? No, of course not. No, I'm just going to drink what I, you know, usually drink on a usually Wednesday, drink. which is IPAs. <laughs> Although Asiento doesn't have an IPA on tap anymore. So I'm just going to drink a pale ale instead. Not in, in anyway, because I got my, I got my show tonight. I, 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 I oh and you know what it's probably going to be a good show so that means a lot of people might be out today too. So. Oh yeah, it's um oh, the re reservations are almost sold out. I believe there's like three seats left, which is pretty exciting. So mm. yay, yeah things are things are good three over are in good. Comedy Land for Mutiny Radio and Pam Benjamin. Uh, things don't suck too much right now, to be perfectly honest. Uh, yeah, I have That's I have good. like I have eight shows this week, which is fucking nutballs and i get to be on a, a zoom show with doug benson what i know wow i know may 20th so hal sparks was in person and that was amazing and um this is going to be a zoom one that i'm doing with ngayo bellum who was on the hal sparks show with me and he booked me on this show where doug benson is performing which i'm like what <laughs> oh my god so it's 5 20 but it's a 420 special, so I get to be super high. And anyways, I'm very, very excited to to feel like I'm starting to, I don't know, get booked more. Um, yeah, so that's good. Yay me! Especially since, especially now since you know things are slowly starting to open up again. Right. And. Uh, people are getting vaccinated, and so yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's really good news. And that Johnson and Johnson's coming back out with their single dose, which is so. I talked to the people at Glide, and it was really interesting. And they said, "Oh, you can come back and get your vaccination." I said, "Which one are you giving?" I don't want to take the Pfizer. I want to take Moderna. They said, "Oh, we can sign you up for a certain day to get that." But primarily here at Glide, we use and we want to use the Johnson and Johnson. And I said, ah, that makes sense because of your population. <laughs> no, seriously, the population that they work with are questionably housed and potentially indigent people who don't necessarily – if they make an appointment once, dear God, if they show up, fantastic. It, to have someone be double vaccinated in that population, I can, manage, I can imagine is a large challenge. So, you know – That's the, true. The Johnson & Johnson makes a lot of sense for people if it's a one-shot and done because – there are so and it's, and for children, for all kinds of people, families that are busy and single moms, pretty much everybody. It's difficult to schedule yourself twice and show up. So anyway, for the laziest of us out there, Johnson and Johnson yeah. seems like a. And I think 
the, the possibly the Johnson Johnson might be more mass produced. I haven't read up on that, so don't quote me on that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but, you know, there's still like a bunch of these idiots around that um, don't uh, want to wear a mask. Like my aunt who lives in misery, where I'm uh-huh. from, was telling me that, you know, you don't have to wear your mask anywhere now. And she's like, I just still don't feel comfortable what? even after getting vaccinated. Yeah. You know, basically. Oh, I'm wearing know, a mask mis- forever now. I mean, th- I've never been more healthy in my life. I'm, I, I can't believe yeah. we haven't been wearing masks on the bus since 1972. Like, what are we, are you <laughs> kidding me? Wait, everyone's just been, and gloves and shit. Uh, Cause this is the craziest thing. So I was on the bus the other day and we're fine. I know we're back to normal because I saw an Asian lady clipping her motherfucking nails. Clip, clip, clip oh, on the no. bus. I was like, well, we are back to normal friends. We are back. Why does that always happen to you? You I, always have personal grooming story. on the bus. It's gross. Picking their nose, clipping their nails, dealing with their toenails, all of it. Brushing their teeth, that taking is... a shit. No, 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 no. God. I don't care if we weren't in a pandemic. It's still no. And, you know, here's another thing. Like, so the CDC also said that, you know, we don't have to, uh, you know, outdoors, you know, no mask is really required now, supposedly, which even with that, like, even when I go for my runs, I'm still wearing my mask just because, you know, I, you know, maybe it's because I, I figured that's the way it's going to be for, for a while. And I'm so used to wearing it or I think, and it's a little part of me is like, I don't feel comfortable even with the vaccine, you know, it's... uh... Yeah, because people are disgusting monsters and we should have been wearing masks all along. I think, like, (laughs) Asia had it right from the beginning. And I I look at now, it's it's sort of normal now, and I've got sort of a mask style that I'm going with, you know, and I try to match it to my outfits, and I have different ones. (laughs) I'm I'm telling you, I don't don't have a problem. I mean... Do I enjoy wearing a mask? No. Have I? Has it kept me healthy for a year now? Fuck yes. So doctors have been wearing them for years and they seem to work because doctors work in hospitals and they don't get sick every fucking day, right? So there's something right about masks. And I don't understand why there was such a large contingency of people that were like, this is your ruin. I'm an American. <laughs> wear a mask i'm gonna marry don't you tell me it's like for the hell and still we still have to deal with those imbeciles that are still going by that philosophy you know i don't know if i told you this but i was talking to a friend of mine and i have a friend who i was very close to and we even lived together and he's always been a conspiracy theorist and he's always been you know online you know he, he he's kind of a weirdo but i love him dearly but i'm going to have to break off our friendship because he is now in the deep hole of QAnon, deep deep oh. to the point where uh, my significant other showed me a posting last week of him doing a and by the way he is korean uh 
Um, so he was doing the white supremacy uh, sign, but backwards. And then even my mother saw on so on his social media saying that the George Floyd case wasn't real. It was propaganda. It's a government conspiracy. And so, like, he's just been going more and more into the rabbit hole. And so I've been dealing with the fact of breaking up our friendship because it's really hard because we've been friends for almost close to 20 years and have a history. And it's not easy for me to break. I'm a very loyal person. So it's not really hard for me to just end something abruptly like so. And so I was talking to my friend and I've been asking people, and I'm going to ask you guys yeah. and you, Pam, um, knowing that I've been with, uh, you know, this person's basically far gone. There's no, like any kind of conversation or reality or logic that I try to have with him is just, I can't, it, I, I can't, I can't talk to him. And so seeing as these things, these two big major things especially of me being black and him being korean i don't know what the fuck is on his mind uh you know him saying what he said about the george floyd case struck a chord to me because that also and this is this i was thinking this and this is what my friend said the fact that he would say something such like that shows that if that could have been any of us that means that shows a sign of he wouldn't care. Mm. You know? Yeah. And seeing as the last straw of him, you know, supposedly putting up that white supremacy sign, knowing <laughs> goddamn well your ass ain't even goddamn white. Uh, uh, oh, wow. You know, it, 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 it just... I, I'm at the point of, you know... I'm not going to block him. I'm not going to, I'm just not going to answer. Yeah, there's, I, and you don't even, it, with the internet, I, I don't even know when people are being serious or being real or when you see people in real life, like I have people who will say weird, shitty things on the internet and then you see them in real life and they don't say anything about it and it has nothing to do with anything and they're like, they don't even mention it and I think to myself, so is this a persona that you play online? And then why would you want to adopt that persona? It does not paint you in the most you know, positive flattering, light. positive light. So why, and if you're trying to make a quote unquote joke, it's kind of triggering and it isn't really joking. It's more of like trolling. So like, what is your end game with it? And if they're, if they are a real person and they're like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm a comedian, I'm being silly. But if, if their motivation behind it is truly to get under people's skin and and be like talk about white supremacy, my God, unfriend up! Don't talk to that person ever again. What? Ugh. I I don't know. That's just my two cents. Okay. I had to unfriend uh, a bunch know. of people that were from the back east that were Trump supporters, and during the whole pre-insurrection and. Uh, but the, at the sixth, at the Capitol, and things that they were saying, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, I, and I used to pride myself on saying, "Well, you know, we can still be friends, even if you're a Republican." Uh, but I had to draw the line at one point and say, "Your candidate is crazy, go nuts. Uh, we cannot support this person, and uh, I have, I can't, 
I can't listen to your uh, meanderings anymore. So. Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, it, it's hurtful and painful. And it's uh, what I was saying earlier, it's almost like having a death of a friend because I don't know when that person will ever come back to normal. Sure, sure. And seeing as, you know, this is, QAnon is a cult, ladies and gentlemen. Um, cults are almost like what they do with... Um, with people who are who are drug addicts you know you unfortunately you have to cut the cord and if they're ready to they have to be ready to get help you can't force it on them right you know and you know this is who he is like even when he was here uh back in 2019 he was saying some of the crazy stuff you know hang, he was you know hanging out with trump supporters and you know, all this. And he's, like I said, he's always been this hardcore conspiracy theory. Like what started, tr what troubled me, and I've never told anyone this, when we were living together, you know, I didn't know he was into Alex Jones like that because, <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, I was not paying attention to that crazy fuck. Yeah. But he, he said something that, it it, 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 it it struck a nerve with me. And now flashing forward, it was a sign that I should have saw immediately when he said that possibly the Holocaust didn't happen. What? See, now that's and triggering remember, for me. That's, that, that's like saying slavery didn't happen. That's like saying, exactly, and that's they were all, they all of their own volition came over here. Excuse me? No. Slavery was real. Exactly. We stole people from their homes. We kidnapped them. We brought them to a country. We forced them into labor. We forced them to, to start our nation. That happened. The Holocaust happened. The Nazi regime murdered. Their gas chambers were real. You can see them. You can look right. at the mass graves. You can see. It's impossible to Thank deny you. it when you have the mass graves. You have the bones of the dead <laughs> fucking people. How can you deny That's the exactly Holocaust? That's what I'm saying. And I remember when he said that, he said that in, in front of me and our other best friend, Wanda. And I just remember tearing, both of us tearing him a whole new one. And I even said to him, like, so what, you think slavery didn't happen too? He's like, oh, yeah, that happened. I'm like, so what makes you think that the Holocaust didn't happen? Where are you getting these ideas? And surely enough, you know, I'm now putting everything together. It was the shit that he was into online like i of course i didn't police what he was he was listening or watching on youtube or what have you i'm not his mother yeah. you know and so some of the things these were red flags that i saw ahead and then you know luckily that was like toward the end before i moved out here but i was just so livid at him for that whole week yeah. and started questioning our friendship at that time because it's like then what is he going to think of me? And surely now, 10 years later, it's the same thing, you know? But it's more crazy pants because I, I can under, there's, there's motivation behind people who say they deny the Holocaust. They're like, for whatever reason, they need the justification and that's, and it's, it's ridiculous. And 
we know the truth and I, but I understand why they might want to hide that from themselves. But this QAnon stuff is crazy pants. Cannibalistic pedophiles that Trump <laughs> is the general of an army against. Excuse me? Like it's, it's, there isn't even a science fiction movie that can, it doesn't even, it's, it's so ridiculous that if you brought it to Hollywood and said, ha ha, I've got, I've got the next movie. It's about cannibalistic pedophiles and, uh, and Donald Trump leading an army of Christians against them. They would, they would, they would say, get your crazy pants out the door. We're not making this movie. That's crazy. But the, there are people that subscribe to these nutball ideas. I mean, I subscribe to a lot of nutball ideas, but I draw the line at cannibals. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it... Unfriend. <laughs> Thank you. Seriously. You know, so, it, it's, it's you're just almost done with your, my soul. Well, it's also hard because you're yeah. educated, and so you know things. And so I was gonna, that was gonna ask me about how is, uh, how you're almost done with school here. Oh yeah, so that I, you know, I, I definitely know it's going toward the end of the school year because I'm starting to get real fucking lazy. <laughs> I started not to want to finish reading my chapters, like today, like I'm gonna. Uh, you know, today I have class obviously at three o'clock and I don't want to go to class oh. <laughs> because I'm just like, I'm, but I'm going to, cause I haven't missed any, you know, uh, online. So I have like a, you know, my, I, 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 I've been to every course, yeah, you're getting an you know, a every so class. Far. Yes. Yeah. I better be. And, you know, I'm just like at the point where like, okay. And this is always, this is always with me where I'm just like, Oh, it's toward the end, and I'm starting to get a little lazy. But it's natural with, like, a lot of people. I just, like, you know, now I have a friend of mine who's going to hire me. Uh, I'm helping her film stuff, and, you know, now I'm able to, like, work and make a little bit of money. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm also at the fact of, like, do I want to return uh, in the fall? Oh. Do I want to go full throttle or do I also, I have an opportunity to possibly work in cannabis as well. Wow. Cool. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm at a crossroads of not knowing what I want. And I hate that. I don't like being too indecisive about this. Should we ask, Especially, the, magic, ask the magic eight ball? <laughs> yeah not the magic eight ball you're thinking of not the one that's super expensive the one where you just it says like all signs point to yes i make most of my major life decisions with a magic eight ball so you might just want to just go with that or you could actually sit down and think about what you want to do with your life you know whatever yeah well i mean luckily there i mean around a good support system where i have a friend who's a journalist who is willing to help me and i need to get on that too instead of procrastinating of like okay so what is it that, you know, you can do since I am not going to be returning to the hospitality business? Right. I don't want to. I'm hearing all these horror stories of these Karens and these Kins, you know, treating their servers and fast food workers and bartenders. You know, I don't want to be in an environment like that. 
because things are different from 2000 early in 2020 yeah absolutely you know i mean if yeah, i you have to be a bartender already... behind glass with a mask on nobody can understand anybody you're yelling at your bartender it, it, it there's it's impossible it's impossible I, I'm, well, I mean, I have an offer to go back to uh, McKellar. I yeah. could if I wanted to, and there's no glass or anything. It's just the fact that even in that demographic of people, you know, I don't want to explain myself to a bunch of techies. I don't want to be around a bunch of anti-vaxxers. I don't want to be around a bunch of white supremacists. I don't want to be around a bunch of people... Uh, who, you know, why are you still wearing a mask? It's over. I'm vaccinated. I don't want to babysit either, right. yeah. you know, because on top of that, you know, you're still going to have to wear your mask when you're in the bar. I don't want to tell people, please put your mask on, especially if they're intoxicated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm all, I honestly, I don't mind having a good fight. I just don't want to. I, I completely understand you know, and plus I'm too, I don't want to, it's time to move on. I've been in the hospitality business since I was in high school, since 1997, you know, I've done other things, but I also, it, you know, I just, I'm, I'm ready for something else. I'm, a, I'm going to be 40 this year. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with people's bullshit. I got my own black problems. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. No, it's the same thing. Like when I turned, when I was in my mid thirties, I decided I ha I have to live alone. I cannot live with a roommate unless they are a lover. There, it just I cannot do it. I'm an adult now. I'm making adult decisions, and that's it's just one of those things that happens too with jobs. Like, what am I doing? Do I I, I I'm the one doing this. I can change. I can do something completely different. But I'm the only one who can do it. So. I get yeah. you, girl. I see. And that's the other thing. I did a joke about it last week. I was like, oh, because I was wearing my cheerleading jacket from high school. And I was like, look, I was on varsity track and cross country and cheer. I had so <laughs> much potential. And there's nothing grosser than a 46-year-old woman who still has potential. It's like, girl, figure it out. <laughs> mm. So I got, I got some good laughs on that. But because, you know, being a 46-year-old with potential is not. And, and, and I've seen some friends recently, too, where. You know, and they take heroic doses, doses of um, psilocybin and other drugs. And, and in my 20s, boy, was I impressed with that. Boy, did I think it was cool. I was like, yeah, <laughs> we're doing tons of drugs. And then in my 30s, I was like, ah, you know, it's just, it's not as cute. You know, it's like, what are you, right. do you really? And then if you're still doing that stuff in your 40s, it's just not cute anymore. Like, Oh, yeah. oh man, I did, I did, uh, I did a whole ounce of mushrooms yesterday. Why? Save some for the rest of us. Like, it's like when you were little and you went to the <laughs> drinking fountain and the person was drinking water, drinking water, and you're like, save some for the fishes, save some for the rest of us. I feel the same way. I'm like, there's no reason to take an ounce of shrooms by yourself. Dude, what's the point of that? Why would <laughs> On you do a Tuesday. That? Right, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. But. Say, you know, do them with, if you're going to do an ounce of mushrooms with 15 people, fine. That's fun. But don't like, you know, God, it's just not as cute once we get old, like all the fun, crazy things we used to do. Yeah. I, you know, the thing is like, you know, I, I still have a little, you know, 
I, I think it's just about getting wiser and what have you. And especially going back to the whole career thing. For a long time, you know, I felt kind of stuck because I, you know, when I first moved here, I, you know, I started working again in the beauty industry, which I have worked in before. And I hated it. So I went back to the bar industry and I loved it and, you know, was making money again. And then, you know, toward I, you know, the end of my thirties, around 37, 38, I was just like, I can't, I don't, I'm getting burnt out. And, you know, for around that time, I was feeling guilty of like, well, some of my friends have these great careers and, you know, I should already be established. And, you know, why am I still here? All these stupid questions of what society puts into your head about what you should be at a certain age and time. And, and then, you know, obviously we, you know, at the time of the pandemic, well, that just got flipped upside down. So everyone is basically having to start over, you know, you know, there are people that made thousands of dollars a year, you know, like six figures who don't have that job anymore, who have to start over or, you know, people who were retired who have mm -hmm. to go back into the workforce, you know, stuff like that. I think about where it's like, okay, I don't feel too bad, especially, you know, I've mentioned this before about the classes that I'm taking. A lot of them come from the hospitality business because they know that, well, obviously no, no career is sustainable. We, we witnessed that. Yeah. You know, we've witnessed the fact that it doesn't matter if you have a PhD, an AA, a BA, MBA, there is no guarantee that your, you know, that cushion that you once have is going to be there for you to fall on. Yeah. And so, and that's at any age. Yeah, the world is, well, the world there, is always uncertain. And that's the thing is that we've, we've, we've snowed ourselves into believing that we have this safety around us oh look my job gives me safety oh look my mortgage my housing this gives me safety the world is completely uncertain there is no safety none of us are safe we never have been everything is just veils in front of the truth mm -hmm. that the world is a dangerous fucking place as humans we're vulnerable people like we can die mm -hmm. there's diseases there's animals there's weather Us. there's each other Us. yeah there's yeah there's man versus nature man versus man man versus animal man versus you know whatever man versus god don't even get me started on god which is just another construct because we have so much fear and we want the feeling of safety you know we all try want to try to get back to being in the womb because isn't that a safe place look i'm alive i'm in this incredibly safe place in a person but that's mm -hmm. still not even a safe place because we are humans are frail or maybe we're stronger than we think yeah. because I did walk down. I mean, every time I walk through the tenderloin, I'm like, and I see someone with like a huge abscess on their arm and they're talking to their buddy and they're still shooting up or smoking heroin. And I'm like, so are we resilient and strong or are we weak and fragile? Like. No, I think, I think you said it right the first time that we are fragile people. And, you know, we are taught in, in different environments, especially, I'll just speak in the American perspective, yeah. where 
you know, we're supposed to be invincible. You know, in this country, we're taught America's invincible and we're number one and all the, you know, you know, there's no country greater and we have the best of the best and the best, all these things. And, you know, you have that idea of certain, certain conservatives that say, you know, I don't need the government to help me. I, you know, I can pull myself for the bootstraps. That's not true. Right. Everybody needs help yeah, because no we are fragile people. No man is an island. I mean, even there though you I, go. I, try I like be, that saying. I try to be a lone wolf and I try to do things by myself, but it's impossible because no matter what, even as a stand-up comedian, when you stand up on stage and you have your microphone and it's just you, it's not just you because the audience is there and there's the booker. And if you're the booker, then you have to book other people. So you can't do it alone. You have to have other people too. I mean, there's, I don't think there's anything we can do in a pure vacuum except maybe meditate because anything, any out, right? Any output <laughs> that we have and poop, I guess we do that alone. But any output <laughs> of our body of our mind that we want anyone to appreciate. There needs to be another person there to appreciate it. I mean, cause no one's just going to, mm -hmm. then it's just, otherwise it's just masturbating. Like, Ooh, I wrote this poem for myself. Yeah. Yeah. But if there's no audience <laughs> for what you're doing, doesn't matter if you're doing it. I, I guess it's supposed to, and we're supposed to feel that way within ourselves that like, Oh, I did this for me, but nothing. I just, I don't think art exists in a vacuum. I think it requires an audience. It requires a viewer for you to say, ah, oh, yes, this is art. It, art is shared. I don't think that, I think it's art is personal, but it's the personal that's then shared. And without the sharing, it's not art. It's just a journal or it's just therapy or whatever, unless you share it. Yeah. But those are just my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I get that, you know, I've been taking a break a little bit from the news too, because I had noticed, you know, reading and, and listening to the news constantly can, you know, it brings your morale down because, you know, there's never going to be a hundred percent good day, you know, if you're listening to the news oh. all day, you know, Amen, sister. And, you know, good news is sometimes so hard to come by, you know, and you don't want to ignore what's going around, going on around you completely. You want to always, you know, be inside of what's happening in your surroundings. But at the same time, I, it's been hard for me to deal with my interpersonal situations of what to do next with work or should I go out there and help others? Well, that's always a must you know, what, what career can I do to better people or, you know, this world rather than just get people drunk? Well, you know, and, and there, and there's nothing wrong with it. I was just thinking of the Sheryl Crow song. Uh, All I want to do is have a little fun before I die, said the man next to me out of nowhere. <laughs> and it is, I do think that recreation and specifically alcoholic recreation it's been an important part of my life and I think mm -hmm. it is kind of necessary for it brings a sense of community and bonding and family and th that you might that other people might not have in other places but then when the bars fell apart because of COVID I feel like that was lost 
I mean, I really, it was really hard for me because I lost my community because my community was a bar. Now, is, that's for better or worse. Maybe it, maybe, but it's, I, it's a social gathering. It's a social yeah. gathering. And I, it was really, really important and kind of integral to who I was as a person. So when that all fell away from with COVID, I had a, I had a really deep searching moments where, and that, the problem was that I threw myself into comedy, which is even worse. You know what? How about this? Bar people are much healthier, nicer, and more community-based than comedians. I miss my bar people. <laughs> so <laughs> I do. I really do. Um, but that, but yeah. that sense of community disappeared, and I didn't know where to find it. And so I delved further into comedy, which was better for my quote-unquote career, whatever that means. But it hasn't been good for my uh, psyche. It's definitely a career. It's definitely a career. Did you hear my air quotes? You know, <laughs> huh? Could you hear my air quotes? Career. I do. Yeah. Career. <laughs> but I think it is. And that's another thing because I haven't even been doing any of my art. And, and so even someone said to me yesterday that, you know, you need to work on your funny. You know, you're not really that funny. And what? that kind of sting. Yeah. Who is this asshole? I'm going to go beat him what up. Is it? Oh, it's a YouTube asshole. And I, of course, I took offense to it and I, I popped off. And they said, like, you know, don't, don't, you know, just work on it. And maybe I do, because honestly, with the year 2020, it's, I haven't found any too many things to laugh at. Yeah. Or right. poke, I mean, if anything, the things that I've been poking fun of are very not PC. Like, they're really, like, when I say not politically correct, I mean, like, going down in the gutter. Because to me, darkness is the only laughter that I find humor in right now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and and not that's not for everybody. <laughs> um, but... I also haven't been able to perform. I haven't written. I haven't painted. Oh. I, you know, I've just, there's just, like, I feel like my art, my artistic side has just gone down the tubes. Yeah. And this is where I'm at also with career. Like, for the longest time, I used to consider myself an artist. Now I just consider myself a big question mark. Huh. Though I, you know, I don't, you know, I, I just. It's, it's hard because it's, there's a lot of confluences of events here. First, COVID ruined everything. So that was very difficult. Two, you're turning 40. That's scary. Like, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It is. When I turned 40, I, yes. I, it was a big, that was like. That was big. It's going to be, I mean, 50, I think, is going to be even scarier or maybe less scary. Maybe 40 <laughs> is scarier than 50 because you're already like, eh, I'm old. But 40 is the first time where you're like, I'm an adult. I'm a real adult now. Like, I'm an, I'm an adult adult. Like, this Yeah, is... you know, you, you remember your parents when they were like, when they turned 40. Like, yeah, I remember yeah. when my mom turned 40, mm -hmm. you know. I, re you know, I, you know, and like you said, you're a real adult adult to where that idea of what we were discussing earlier of being established already. Right. And, you know, and our, my, my mom's a baby boomer. And I think your, your parents are, yeah, my ba parents are first baby year boomers. baby. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, my mom was born in 58. And so, you know, that generation, it was easier for them to be established at 40. My mom turned 40 in 1998. Ah. So, you know, and so she, you know, she was still having a good time. She was already in her career. She was already in her second career and already been married and divorced. I haven't had any of those married divorce things. Sure. Good for you. Um, I've been in the same. (laughs) No kids. Right. You know, uh, (laughs) I got rid of them. Uh, Uh (laughs) um, And, you know. It's seeing how what it is is time. Time. Everything that our parents said about one day when you get old, you you'll see what I'm talking about. Where time is that. I'm already freaking out about the fact that we're almost six months into the year, and yeah. the year just started. I know. I know. It's crazy. Like we're about to hit summer, and it still feels like to me February. I I 100 <laughs> like, agree with that that t- time is moving so fast. I mean, these weeks are going by so fast for me because it's like, I'm like, it's already Wednesday again. It's time for another Asiento show. It's just like every week. Oh, it's Friday again. It's time to teach. Okay, it's Monday. It's time to do the nannying and then the joke workshop. It just keeps like my, my, my weeks are just wheels and they're spinning so fast. And, and that's nice. good, but it's also, am I my only question is, am I taking the time to appreciate what's happening? Like, am I taking time to revel in this yeah. joy of having eight booked shows this week? Like, am I actually experiencing it or am I just do, 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 do? And I, I hope that I'm right. Rather than just to, being right. To, right. Just being, being a hamster on the wheel. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm going to die soon anyway. So I need to have as much stage time. So people try to remember me because everybody's going to die. You better stop. I'm no, just saying, I'm putting 46. That in that atmosphere. I'm 46. 46 is still, are you kidding me? If you were to die today, people would be like, oh my gosh, she was so young. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's sweet. 46 is Listen, I, I heard when I, you know, during my father, my father's funeral, my elders who were like in their 60s uh, and 70s, early 70s, you know, they're like, oh, how old are you now? I'm like, oh, I'll be 40 next year. Mm. And they're like, oh, girl, you're still just a baby, which made me feel good. Sure. But they're <laughs> set when they're in the their fact- 70s, though, that's a little different. Yeah. And so, you know, I, we also have to put that into perspective as well, you know, because with us, our generations, people are able to, well, they used to be able to live longer. I don't know about what after 2020, but you know, the lifestyle that most of us live. And I think especially with you, you're a Gen Xer and then um, early millennial, we, we know how to take care of ourselves a little bit better than our parents and definitely our grandparents and their parents, you know, well, because we have the they, technology the, to do so. Right. The technology has enabled right. us to, to, I mean, it's it's life changing. We're talking through a, we're talking through a phone through a computer right now and being on the radio that's on the internet. Well, like, we, there's my grandma couldn't have imagined the concept of, oh yeah, you touch your phone and it's a screen. What? It was science fiction. It was crazy, and that now, this is this is reality. As children don't read books, they swipe and everything is swipe or no swiping. Um, 
everything is touchscreen technology. And are we soon going to have to have buttons that say that we're vaccinated to go anywhere? Are we going to be able to go on a plane? Are we going to um, be able to go to a that's coliseum? That's going to be coming soon. I believe it too. I, I, I don't think we'll be able to do I anything without our vaccines. I, I completely agree. That's funny that you say that because my mother and I this morning were having a conversation about that because she, um, she can't get it right now because she's on antibiotic. But once she's off of it, She's like, first thing I'm doing is going to go get vaccinated because she's 63 years old. Yeah. Um, but there is going to be, and I'm okay with that. Honestly, I'm okay with that because to me, it's, you're not going to be killing anybody. Right. Well, it's safety. And, and the thing is, if you're going, and especially if you're going abroad, if you're going anywhere outside right. of our borders, but even, I'd even say, any traveling on a plane, I, I really don't have a problem with that because you're in close quarters. There's all that recycled air. If anyone's sick, everyone's getting sick. So how about we just make sure that no one's sick? Now, the other thing would be why don't we have and why didn't we have rapid COVID tests? Because if people don't have the ability to get the vaccine and they do have to fly, why wouldn't you have a COVID test that you could register in 60 seconds that says, pooping, oh, you don't have it. Okay, get on the plane. Boop, bink, oops, you have it. Get the fuck out of here. Like, Well, they're doing that now. They're actually, my cousin told me, because um, she's traveled, uh, she just got back from Costa Rica. They had to do a COVID test before they got on the plane. Good. So they were, they were doing that. I know when I flew in the fall, they didn't do that. But, and plus she was going to another country. Um, but you also have to realize that Thing, this whole thing has been politicized to people just like I don't want to wear a mask for freedom or the vaccine is the anti-vaxxers first of all I, I've, gotten to, I've gotten into so many confrontations with people on social media about being vaccinated I, and I asked them do you have a polio vaccination and a measles because if you do, you're a hypocrite. Right. You know, because this vaccine is going to be the same thing as what we did as a kid. The first thing you had to do before you went to start school was what? Yeah, you got you got vaccinated. And it's the same thing. It's the reason you. why we don't let people go into school. You can't have TB. You're not allowed to you're not allowed to go to school with TB because I don't think there's a vaccination against TB. But the measles, the mumps, these killed people. The the uh, yes. polio polio, polio de devastated people when they were young. they can't walk you know FDR yeah, the we whole... had a president that had we had a president uh, Roosevelt have polio yeah, FDR had polio so they're real diseases and if science makes a way for us to be able to move forward fantastic and I think all of that's incredibly important and that's why so many of us are still alive now if this is some and I don't, I don't think that this is some huge government conspiracy. This, it wouldn't be just be a government conspiracy. It'd be a worldwide conspiracy. And the only way I could believe it is if, like, Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer had gotten together and they're like, aha, you know how we make a ton of money off people. Um, but other than that, yeah. Yeah, well, death, that's, I mean, we, what we, what we know is, is that death. people make money off people being sick, not them dying. Once they're dead, we can't make Thank money you. off them anymore. But when they're sick, we can make lots yeah. of money off them. 
because they need that's why medicines and other things and whatever right that's why pharmaceutical companies make money and that's what you know going back to the conversation about i guess now my ex-best friend he's one of those like my mom took when she talked to him about a month ago uh she asked him if he's going to be vaccinated it's like i'm not going to get vaccinated why there's no again he's one of those who doesn't believe that this is real wow and that was another reason why i'm like i can't be around you yeah you're gonna literally kill me you ever, you ever question the nature of your own reality yeah man i'm questioning the nature of your reality well um yeah it's this has been another uh scintillating afternoon with you and we're, we're gonna be okay that's yeah. good and you're gonna do really well in yeah. your class today maybe check out oh, the I like our affirmation thank yeah, you yeah. I needed that yeah and like, you're gonna do great tonight thank and you you're killing it. and I I swear to I swear to God I am going to come see you like one of these beautiful Wednesdays when I'm not in a book which is soon yeah which like I said I will be be, be able to come to the studio rad um fantastic yeah well and tomorrow i've got the show we still have some reservations left for the bar at dolores the bar the bar on dolores show that's at seven o'clock tomorrow and that's really a fun show and then saturday at atlas cafe 2 p.m they're still for that show in the sunshine in the afternoon but tonight has a really great lineup tony sparks gabby Puccia, pete Bomer, josh khan chris ferdinson and all the way from the philippines Chino Liao, he's uh, in town here for a month. I'm putting him on a bunch of shows. Nice. Sam will probably come in. We don't know. We'll see. He You're going to be popping tonight. Yeah, I know. We already have um, we have 30, 31 reservations, so that's fantastic. It's going to be a full house, and there's always people that show up anyway. So, I, I mean, I couldn't be happier. And I'm going to try yeah. to be funny. And it's nice. It's, it's a nice, beautiful single de Mayo. So enjoy the weather, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, if you're here. Or anywhere that where, where there's sunshine. Yeah, enjoy the sunshine. You're the you're the sunshine of my life. You bring sunshine to me every day. Oh, you're Aww. sweet. You're the sunshine oh, of my life. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> have the best class ever, and uh, have a great show. I will talk to you soon. Yay! Bye. Latoya, the sheriff of truth. She's the sheriff of truth, and she brings it to us every week. All right, so. I was gifted this amazing thing that I'm going to play for the rest of the show today. And it was from Scato of Flat Black Plastic, of course. He's constantly getting strange and wonderful gifts. This is Stephen King, a book called Ur. You are. I've never heard of it. It's on. It's narrated by Holter Graham. It says, for the first time in audio, the unabridged novella unavailable in any collection. Hell fucking yeah. I love Stephen King. So that's the thing is I've, it's never been anywhere else, which is why I haven't read it and I don't know about it because I've read everything of his except for this. So now I am. Here we go. You are too. This is Ur by Stephen King, narrated by Holter Graham. MutinyRadio.fm.sf. Get tickets quickly before they sell out <laughs> for tonight's show or tomorrow's show or Saturday's show. Um Tonight, again, is at Asiento. Tomorrow is at the bar on Dolores. And Saturday is at Atlas Cafe outside in the parklet. It's a great show. Always great lineup. Okay. Here's Herb by Stephen King. Recorded Books presents R.B. Shorts. 
a collection of classic and contemporary stories from the world's best writers of short fiction. And now, Ur by Stephen King, narrated by Holter Graham. One, experimenting with new technology. When Wesley Smith's colleagues asked him, some with an eyebrow hoiked satirically, what he was doing with that gadget, they all called it a gadget, he told them he was experimenting with new technology. But that was not true. He bought the gadget, which was called a Kindle, out of spite. I wonder if the market analysts at Amazon even have that one on their product survey radar, he thought. He guessed not. This gave him some satisfaction, but not as much as he hoped to derive from Ellen Silverman's surprise when she saw him with his new purchase. That hadn't happened yet, but it would. It was a small campus, after all, and he'd only been in possession of his new toy. He called it his new toy, at least to begin with, for a week. Wesley was an instructor in the English department at Moore College in Moore, Kentucky. Like all instructors of English, he thought he had a novel in him somewhere and would write it someday. Moore College was the sort of institution that people call a good school. Wesley's friend in the English department, his only friend in the English department, once explained what that meant. His friend's name was Don Allman, and when he introduced himself, he liked to say, one of the Allman brothers, I play a mean tuba. He did not actually play anything. A good school, he said, is one nobody has ever heard of outside a 30-mile radius. People call it a good school because nobody knows it's a bad school, and most people are optimists, although they may claim they are not. People who call themselves realists are often the biggest optimists of all. Does that make you a realist? Wesley once asked him. I think the world is mostly populated by shitheads, Don Allman responded. You figure it out. Moore wasn't a good school, but neither was it a bad school. On the great scale of academic excellence, its place resided just a little south of mediocre. Most of its 3,000 students paid their bills, and many of them got jobs after graduating, although few went on to obtain or even try for graduate degrees. There was a fair amount of drinking, and of course there were parties, but on the great scale of party schools, Moore's place resided just a little to the north of mediocre. It had produced politicians, but all of the small-water variety, even when it came to graft and chicanery. In 1978, one Moore graduate was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, but he dropped dead of a heart attack after serving only four months. His replacement was a graduate of Baylor. The school's only marks of exceptionality had to do with its Division III football team and its Division III women's basketball team. The football team, the Moore Meerkats, was one of the worst in America, having won only seven games in the last ten years. There was constant talk of disbanding it. The current coach was a drug addict who liked to tell people that he had seen the wrestler twelve times and never failed to cry when Mickey Rourke told his estranged daughter that he was just a broken-down piece of meat. The women's basketball team, however, was exceptional in a good way especially considering that most of the players were no more than five feet seven and were preparing for jobs as marketing managers, wholesale buyers, or, if they were lucky, personal assistants to men of power. The Lady Meerkats had won eight conference titles in the last ten years. The coach was Wesley's ex-girlfriend, ex as of one month previous. 
Ellen Silverman was the source of the spite that had moved Wesley to buy a Kindle from Amazon Inc., the company that sold them. Well, Ellen and the Henderson kid in Wesley's introduction to modern American fiction class. Don Allman also claimed the more faculty was mediocre. Not terrible, like the football team. That, at least, would have been interesting. But definitely mediocre. What about us? Wesley asked. They were in the office they shared. If a student came in for a conference, the instructor who had not been sought would leave. For most of the fall and spring semesters, this was not an issue, as students never came in for conferences until just before finals. Even then, only the veteran grade grubbers, the ones who'd been doing it since elementary school, turned up. Don Allman said he sometimes fantasized about a juicy co-ed wearing a t-shirt that said, I will screw you for an A. But this never happened. What about us? What about us? Look at us, bro. I'm going to write a novel, Wesley replied, although even saying it depressed him. Almost everything depressed him since Ellen had walked out. When he wasn't depressed, he felt spiteful. Yes, and President Obama is going to tab me as the new poet laureate, Don Allman exclaimed. Then he pointed at something on Wesley's cluttered desk. The Kindle was currently sitting on American Dreams, the textbook Wesley used in his Intro to American Lit class. How's that working out for you? Fine, Wesley said. Will it ever replace the book? Never, Wesley said, but he had already begun to wonder. I thought they only came in white, Don Allman said. Wesley looked at Don as haughtily as he himself had been looked at in the department meeting where his Kindle had made its public debut. Nothing only comes in white, he said. This is America. Don Allman considered this, then said, I heard you and Ellen broke up. Wesley sighed. Ellen had been his other friend, and one with benefits, until four weeks ago. She wasn't in the English department, of course, but the thought of going to bed with anyone in the English department, even Suzanne Montanari, who was vaguely presentable, made him shudder. Ellen was 5'2", eyes of blue, slim, with a mop of short, curly black hair that made her look distinctly elfin. She had a dynamite figure and kissed like a dervish. Wesley had never kissed a dervish, but he could imagine. Nor did her energy flag when they were in bed. Once, winded, he lay back and said, I'll never equal you as a lover. If you keep talking snooty like that, you won't be my lover for long. You're okay, Wes. But he guessed he wasn't. He guessed he was just sort of mediocre. It wasn't his less-than-athletic sexual ability that ended their relationship, however. It wasn't the fact that Ellen was a vegan with tofu hot dogs in her fridge. It wasn't the fact that she would sometimes lie in bed after lovemaking, talking about pick-and-rolls, give-and-goes, and the inability of Shauna Deason to learn something Ellen called the old garden gate. In fact, these monologues sometimes put Wesley into his deepest, sweetest, and most refreshing sleeps. He thought it was the monotony of her voice— so different from the shrieks, often profane, of encouragement she let out while they were making love. Shrieks that were similar to the ones she uttered during games, running up and down the sidelines like a hare or a squirrel going up a tree, exhorting her girls to pass the ball and go to the hole and drive the paint. 
Sometimes in bed, she was reduced to yelling, Harder! 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 As, in the closing minutes of a game, she was often able to exhort no more than, Bucket! 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 They were in some ways perfectly matched, at least for the short term. She was fiery iron, straight from the forge, and he, in his apartment filled with books, was the water in which she cooled herself. The books were the problem. That and the fact that he had called her an illiterate bitch. He had never called a woman such a thing in his life before, but she had surprised an anger out of him that he had never suspected. He might be a mediocre instructor, as Don Allman had suggested, and the novel he had in him might remain in him, like a wisdom tooth that never comes up, at least avoiding the possibility of rot, infection, and an expensive, not to mention painful, dental process. But he loved books. Books were his Achilles' heel. She had come in fuming, which was not new, but also fundamentally upset, a state he failed to recognize because he had never seen her in it before. Also, he was rereading James Dickey's Deliverance, reveling again in how well Dickey had harnessed his poetic sensibility, at least that once, to narrative. And he had just gotten to the closing passages, where the unfortunate canoeists are trying to cover up both what they have done and what has been done to them. He had no idea that Ellen had just been forced to boot Shauna Deason off the team, or that the two of them had had a screaming fight in the gym in front of the whole team, plus the boys' basketball team, which was waiting their turn to practice their mediocre moves, or that Shauna Deason had then gone outside and heaved a large rock at the windshield of Ellen's Volvo, an act for which she would surely be suspended. He had no idea that Ellen was now blaming herself, bitterly blaming herself, because she was supposed to be the adult. He heard that part, I'm supposed to be the adult, and said, uh-huh, for the fifth or sixth time, which was one time too many for Ellen Silverman whose fiery temper hadn't exhausted itself for the day after all. She plucked deliverance from Wesley's hands, threw it across the room, and said the words that would haunt him for the next lonely month. Why can't you just read off the computer like the rest of us? She really said that? Don Allman asked, a remark that woke Wesley from a trance-like state. He realized he had just told the whole story to his office mate. He hadn't meant to, but he had, and there was no going back now. She did, and I said, that was a first edition I got from my father, you illiterate bitch. Don Allman was speechless. He could only stare. She walked out, Wesley said miserably. I haven't seen or spoken to her since. I haven't even called to say you're sorry? Wesley had tried to do this, and had gotten only her answering machine. He had thought of going over to the house she rented from the college, but thought she might put a fork in his face, or some other part of his anatomy. Also, he didn't consider what had happened to be entirely his fault. She hadn't even given him a chance. Plus, she was illiterate, or close to it. Had told him once in bed that the only book she'd read for pleasure since coming to Moore was Reach for the Summit the definite dozen system for succeeding at whatever you do by Tennessee Vols coach, Pat Summit. She watched TV, mostly sports, and when she wanted to dig deeper into some news story, she went to the Drudge Report. She certainly wasn't computer illiterate, 
She praised the Moore College wireless network, which was superlative rather than mediocre, and never went anywhere without her laptop slung over her shoulder. On the front was a picture of Tamika Catchings with blood running down her face from a split eyebrow and the legend, I play like a girl. Don Allman sat in silence for a few moments, tapping his fingers on his narrow chest. Outside their window, November leaves rattled across Moore Quadrangle. Then he said, Did Ellen walking out have anything to do with that? He nodded to Wesley's new electronic sidekick. It did, didn't it? You decided to read off the computer, just like the rest of us, to what, woo her back? No, Wesley said, because he didn't want to tell the truth. In a way he still didn't completely understand, he had done it to get back at her, or make fun of her, or something. Not at all. I'm merely experimenting with new technology. Right, said Don Allman, and I'm the new poet laureate. His car was in parking lot A, but Wesley elected to walk the two miles back to his apartment, a thing he often did when he wanted to think. He trudged down Moore Avenue, first past the fraternity houses, then past apartment houses blasting rock and rap from every window, then past the bars and takeout restaurants that serve as a life support system for every small college in America. There was also a bookstore specializing in used texts, and last year's bestsellers offered at 50% off. It looked dusty and dispirited and was often empty because people were home reading off the computer, Wesley assumed. Brown leaves blew around his feet. His briefcase banged against one knee. Inside were his texts, the current book he was reading for pleasure, 2666 by the late Roberto Bolano, and a bound notebook with beautiful marbleized boards. This had been a gift from Ellen on the occasion of his birthday. For your book ideas, she had said. In July, that was, when things between them had still been swell and they'd had the campus pretty much to themselves. The blank book had over 200 pages, but only the first one had been marked by his large, flat scrawl. At the top of the page, printed, was the novel. Below that was, a young boy discovers that his father and mother are both having affairs. And... A young boy, blind since birth, is kidnapped by his lunatic grandfather who... And... A teenager falls in love with his best friend's mother and... Below this one was the final idea, written shortly after Ellen had thrown deliverance across the room and stalked out of his life. A shy but dedicated small college instructor and his athletic but largely illiterate girlfriend have a falling out after... It was probably the best idea. Write what you know. All the experts agreed on that. But he simply couldn't go there. Talking to Don had been hard enough. And even then, anything like complete honesty had escaped him. Like saying how much he wanted her back, for instance. As he approached the three-room flat he called home, what Don Allman sometimes called his bachelor pad, Wesley's thoughts turned to the Henderson kid. Was his name Richard or Robert? Wesley had a block about that, not the same as the block he had about fleshing out any of the fragmentary mission statements for his novel, but probably related. He had an idea all such blocks were probably fear-centered and basically hysterical in nature, 
as if the brain detected, or thought it had detected, some nasty interior beast and had locked it in a cell with a steel door. You could hear it thumping and jumping in there like a rabid raccoon that would bite if approached. But you couldn't see it. The Henderson kid was on the football team, a noseback or point guard or some such thing. And while he was as horrible on the gridiron as any of them, he was a nice kid and a fairly good student. Wesley liked him. But still, he had been ready to tear the boy's head off when he spotted him in class with what Wesley assumed was a PDA or a newfangled cell phone. This was shortly after Ellen had walked out. In those early days of the breakup, Wesley often found himself up at three in the morning, pulling some literary comfort food down from the shelf. Usually his old friends Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matterin, their adventures recounted by Patrick O'Brien. And not even that had kept him from remembering the ringing slam of the door as Alan left his life, probably for good. So he was in a foul mood and more than ready for backtalk as he approached Henderson and said, Put it away. This is a literature class, not an internet chat room. The Henderson kid had looked up and given him a sweet smile. It hadn't lifted Wesley's foul mood in the slightest, but it did dissolve his anger on contact. Mostly because he wasn't an angry man by nature. He supposed he was depressive by nature. Maybe even dysthymic. Hadn't he always suspected that Ellen Silverman was too good for him? Hadn't he known in his heart of hearts that the door slam had been waiting for him from the very beginning when he'd spent the evening talking to her at a boring faculty party? Ellen played like a girl. He played like a loser. He couldn't even stay mad at a student who was goofing with his pocket computer or Nintendo or whatever it was in class. It's the assignment, Mr. Smith, the Henderson kid had said. On his forehead was a large purple bruise from his latest outing in the meerkat blue. It's Paul's case. Look. The kid turned the gadget so Wesley could see it. It was a flat white panel, rectangular, less than half an inch thick. At the top was Amazon Kindle and the Smile logo Wesley knew well. He was not entirely computer illiterate himself and had ordered books from Amazon plenty of times. Although he usually tried the bookstore in town first, partly out of pity, even the cat who spent most of its life dozing in the window looked malnourished. The interesting thing on the kid's gadget wasn't the logo on top or the teeny tiny keyboard, a computer keyboard surely, on the bottom. In the middle of the gadget was a screen, and on the screen was not a screensaver or a video game where young men and women with buffed-out bodies were killing zombies in the ruins of New York, but a page of Willa Cather's story about the poor boy with the destructive illusions. Wesley had reached for it, then drew back his hand. May I? Go ahead, the Henderson kid, Richard or Robert, told him. It's pretty neat. You can download books from thin air, and you can make the type as big as you want. Also, the books are cheaper because there's no paper or binding. That sent a minor chill through Wesley. He became aware that most of his intro to American Lit class was watching him. As a 35-year-old, Wesley supposed it was hard for them to decide if he was old school, like the ancient Dr. Wentz, who looked remarkably like a crocodile in a three-piece suit, or new school, like Suzanne Montanari, who liked to play Avril Lavigne's girlfriend in her introduction to modern drama class. Wesley supposed his reaction to Henderson's Kindle would help them with that. 
Mr. Henderson, he said, there will always be books, which means there will always be paper and binding. Books are real objects. Books are friends. Yeah, but, Henderson had replied, his sweet smile now becoming slightly sly, but they're also ideas and emotions. You said so in our first class. Well, Wesley had said, you've got me there. But books aren't solely ideas. Books have a smell, for instance, one that gets better, more nostalgic as the years go by. Does this gadget of yours have a smell? No, Henderson replied. Not really. But when you turn the pages, here, with this button, they kind of flutter like in a real book, and I can go to any page I want, and when it sleeps, it shows pictures of famous writers, and it holds a charge, and... It's a computer, Wesley had said. You're reading off the computer. The Henderson kid had taken his Kindle back. You say that like it's a bad thing. It's still Paul's case. You've never heard of a Kindle, Mr. Smith? Josie Quinn had asked. Her tone was that of a kindest, asking a member of New Guinea's Combi tribe if he had ever heard of electric stoves and elevator shoes. No, he said, not because it was true. He had seen something called Shop the Kindle Store when he bought books from Amazon online, but because, on the whole, he thought he would prefer being perceived by them as old school. New school was somehow mediocre. You ought to get one, the Henderson kid said. And when Wesley had replied, without even thinking, perhaps I will, the class had broken into spontaneous applause. For the first time since Ellen's departure, Wesley had felt faintly cheered because they wanted him to get a book-reading gadget and also because the applause suggested they did see him as old school, teachable old school. He did not seriously consider buying a Kindle. If he was old school, then books were definitely the way to go until a couple of weeks later. One day on his way home from school, he imagined Ellen seeing him with his Kindle just strolling across the quad and bopping his finger on the little next page button. What in the world are you doing? She would ask, speaking to him at last. Reading off the computer, he would say, just like the rest of you. Spiteful. But, as the Henderson kid might put it, was that a bad thing? It occurred to him that spite was a kind of methadone for lovers. Was it better to go cold turkey? Perhaps not. When he got home, he turned on his desktop Dell. He owned no laptop and took pride in the fact and went to the Amazon website. He had expected the gadget to go for $400 or so, maybe more if there was a Cadillac model, and was surprised to find it was considerably cheaper than that. Then he went to the Kindle store, which he had been so successfully ignoring, and discovered that the Henderson kid was right. The books were ridiculously cheap, Hardcover novels, what cover, ha-ha, priced below most trade paperbacks. Considering what he spent on books, the Kindle might pay for itself. As for the reaction of his colleagues, all those hoiked eyebrows, Wesley discovered he relished the prospect, which led to an interesting insight into human nature, or at least the human nature of the academic. One liked to be perceived by one's students as old school, but by one's peers as new school. I'm experimenting with new technology, he imagined himself saying. He liked the sound of it. It was new school all the way.
He also liked thinking of Ellen's reaction. He had stopped leaving messages on her phone, and he had begun avoiding places, the pit stop, Harry's Pizza, where he might run into her. But that could change. Surely, I'm reading off the computer, just like the rest of you, was too good a line to waste. Oh, that's small, he scolded himself as he sat in front of his computer, looking at the picture of the Kindle. That is spite so small, it probably wouldn't poison a newborn kitten. True. But if it was the only spite of which he was capable, why not indulge it? So he had clicked on the Buy Kindle box, and the gadget had arrived a day later in a box stamped with the Smile logo and the words One Day Delivery. Wesley hadn't opted for one day and would protest that charge if it showed up on his MasterCard bill. But he had unpacked his new acquisition with real pleasure, similar to the pleasure he felt when unpacking a box of books, but sharper. Because there was that sense of heading into the unknown, he supposed. Not that he expected the Kindle to replace books, or to be much more than a novelty item, really, an attention-getter for a few weeks or months that would afterward stand forgotten and gathering dust beside the Rubik's Cube on the knick-knack shelf in his living room. It didn't strike him as peculiar that, whereas the Henderson kid's Kindle had been white, his was pink. Not then. Two. Er functions. When Wesley got back to his apartment after his confessional conversation with Don Allman, the message light on his answering machine was blinking. Two messages. He pushed the playback button, expecting to hear his mother complaining about her arthritis and making trenchant observations about how some sons actually called home more often than twice a month. After that would come a robocall from the Moore Echo, reminding him for the dozenth time that his subscription had lapsed. But it wasn't his mother, and it wasn't the newspaper. When he heard Ellen's voice, he paused in the act of reaching for a beer and listened, bent over, with one hand outstretched in the fridge's frosty glow. Hi, Wes, she said, sounding uncharacteristically unsure of herself. There was a long pause, long enough for Wesley to wonder if that was all there was going to be. In the background, he heard hollow shouts and bouncing balls. She was in the gym, or had been, when she left the message. I've been thinking about us, thinking that maybe we should try again. I miss you. And then, as if she had seen him rushing for the door, but not yet. I need to think a little more about... What you said. A pause. I was wrong to throw your book like that, but I was upset. Another pause, almost as long as the one after she'd said hi. There's a preseason tourney in Lexington this weekend. You know, the one they call the bluegrass? It's a big deal. Maybe when I get back, we should talk. Please don't call me until then, because I've got to concentrate on the girls. Defense is terrible, and I've only got one girl who can actually shoot from the perimeter, and... I don't know. This is probably a big mistake. It's not, he told the answering machine. His heart was pumping. He was still leaning into the open refrigerator, feeling the cold wafting out and striking his face, which seemed too hot. Believe me, it's not. I had lunch with Suzanne Montanari the other day, and she says you're carrying around one of those electronic reading thingies. To me, that seemed, I don't know, like a sign that we should try again. She laughed, then screamed so loud that Wesley jumped. 
chase down that loose ball. You either run or you sit. Then, sorry, I've got to go. Don't call me. I'll call you one way or the other. After the bluegrass. I'm sorry I've been dodging your calls, but you hurt my feelings, Wes. Coaches have feelings too, you know, I... A beep interrupted her. The allotted message time had run out. Wesley uttered the word Norman Mailer's publishers had refused to let him use in The Naked and the Dead. Then the second message started, and she was back. I guess English teachers also have feelings. Suzanne says we're not right for each other. She says we're too far apart in our interests, but maybe there's a middle ground. I'm glad you got the reader. If it's a Kindle, I think you can also use it to go to the Internet. I... I need to think about this. Don't call me. I'm not quite ready. Goodbye. Wesley got his beer. He was smiling. Then he thought of the spite that had been living in his heart for the last month and stopped. He went to the calendar on the wall and wrote pre-season tourney across Saturday and Sunday. He paused, then drew a line through the days of the work week after, a line on which he wrote, Ellen? With that done, he sat down in his favorite chair, drank his beer, and tried to read 2666. It was a crazy book, but sort of interesting. He wondered if it was available from the Kindle store. That evening, after replaying Ellen's messages for the third time, Wesley turned on his Dell and went to the Athletic Department website to check for details concerning the Bluegrass preseason invitational tournament. He knew it would be a mistake to turn up there, and he had no intentions of doing so, but he did want to know who the Meerkats were playing, what their chances were, and when Ellen would be back. It turned out there were eight teams, seven from Division II and only one from Division Three, the Lady Meerkats of Moore. Wesley felt pride on Ellen's behalf when he saw that, and was once more ashamed of his spite, which she, lucky him, knew nothing about. She actually seemed to think he had bought the Kindle as a way of sending her a message. Maybe you're right, and maybe I can change. Maybe we both can. He supposed that if things went well, he would in time come to convince himself that was indeed so. On the website, he saw that the team would leave for Lexington by bus at noon this coming Friday. They would practice at Rupp Arena that evening and play their first game against the Bulldogs of Truman State, Indiana, on Saturday morning. Because the tourney was double elimination, they wouldn't be starting back until Sunday evening no matter what, which meant he wouldn't hear from her until the following Monday at the earliest. It was going to be a long week. And, he told his computer, a good listener, she may decide against trying again anyway. I have to be prepared for that. Well, he could try. And he could also call that bitch Suzanne Montanari and tell her in no uncertain terms to stop campaigning against him. Why would she do that in the first place? She was a colleague, for God's sake. Only if he did that, Suzanne might carry tales straight back to her friend, friend who knew, who even suspected, Ellen. It might be best to leave that aspect of things alone. Although the spite wasn't entirely out of his heart after all, it seemed. Now it was directed at Ms. Montanari. Never mind he told his computer. George Herbert was wrong. Living well isn't the best revenge. Loving well is. He started to turn off his computer, then remembered something Don Allman had said about Wesley's Kindle. 
I thought they only came in white. Certainly the Henderson kids had been white, but what was the saying? One swallow didn't make a summer. After a few false starts, Google, full of information but essentially dumb as a post, led him first to a discussion of whether or not the Kindle would ever be able to produce color images on its screen, a subject in which Wesley, as a book reader, had absolutely zero interest. He thought to search for Kindle fan sites. He found one called the Kindle Candle, with a K. At the top was a bizarre photo of a woman in Quaker garb reading her Kindle by candlelight, or possibly candlelight. Here he read several posts, complaints mostly, about how the Kindle came in only one color, which one blogger called plain old smudge-friendly white. Below it was a reply, suggesting that if the complainer persisted in reading with dirty fingers, he could buy a custom sleeve for his Kindle. In any color you like, she added, grow up and show some creativity. Wesley turned off his computer, went into the kitchen, got another beer, and pulled his own Kindle from his briefcase. His pink Kindle. Except for the color, it looked exactly the same as the ones on the Kindle Candle website. Kindle, candle, bibble, babble, he said. It's just some flaw in the plastic. Perhaps, but why had it come one day express delivery when he hadn't specified that? Because someone at the Kindle factory wanted to get rid of the pink mutant as soon as possible? That was ridiculous. They would have just thrown it away, another victim of quality control. He thought of Ellen's message again. By then he had it by heart. If it's a Kindle, I think you can use it to go to the Internet, she'd said. He wondered if it was true. He turned the Kindle on, and as he did so, he remembered there was something else odd about it. No instruction booklet. He hadn't questioned that until now because the device was so simple to use it practically ran itself. A creepy idea when you considered it. He thought of going back to the Kindle candlers to find out if this was a true oddity, then dismissed the idea. He was just goofing around, after all, beginning to while away the hours between now and next Monday, when he might hear from Ellen again. I miss you, kiddo, he said, and was surprised to hear his voice waver. He did miss her. He hadn't realized how much until he'd heard her voice. He'd been too wrapped up in his own wounded ego, not to mention his sweaty little spite. Strange to think that spite might have earned him a second chance. Much stranger, when you got right down to it, than a pink Kindle. The screen titled Wesley's Kindle Booted Up. Listed were the books he had so far purchased, Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates and The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. The gadget had come with the new Oxford American Dictionary preloaded. You only had to begin typing your word and the Kindle found it for you. It was, he thought, TiVo, for smart people. The question was... Could you access the Internet? He pushed the menu button and was presented with a number of choices. The top one, of course, invited him to shop the Kindle store. But near the bottom was something called experimental. That looked interesting. He moved the cursor to it, opened it, and read this at the top of the screen. We are working on these experimental prototypes. Do you find them useful? Well, I don't know, Wesley said. What are they? The first prototype turned out to be Basic Web. So Ellen was right. The Kindle was apparently a lot more computerized than it looked at first blush. He glanced at the other experimental choices. Music downloads, big whoop, 
and text-to-speech, which might come in handy if he were blind. He pushed the next page button to see if there were other experimental prototypes. There was one. Err functions. Now what in the hell was that? Err, so far as he knew, had only two meanings. A city in the Old Testament and a prefix meaning primitive or basic. The screen didn't help. Although there were explanations for the other experimental functions, there was none for this. Well, there was one way to find out. He highlighted err functions and selected it. A new menu appeared. There were three items. Err books, err news archive, and err local under construction. Huh, Wesley said. What in the world? He highlighted Err Books, dropped his finger onto the Select button, then hesitated. Suddenly his skin felt cold, as when he'd been stilled by the sound of Ellen's recorded voice while reaching into the fridge for a beer. He would later think, It was my own Err, something basic and primitive deep inside telling me not to do it. But was he not a modern man, one who now read off the computer? He was, he was so he pushed the button. The screen blanked, then Welcome to Ur Books appeared at the top of the screen, and in red. The candlers were behind the technological curve, it seemed. There was color on the Kindle. Beneath the welcome message was a picture, not of Charles Dickens or Eudora Welty, but of a large black tower. There was something ominous about it. Below, also in red, was an invitation to Select author. Your choices may not be available. And below that, a blinking cursor. What the hell? Wesley told the empty room. He licked his lips, which were suddenly dry, and typed, Ernest Hemingway. The screen wiped itself clean. The function, whatever it was supposed to be, didn't seem to work. After ten seconds or so, Wesley reached for the Kindle, meaning to turn it off. Before he could push the slide switch, the screen finally produced a new message. 10,438,721 errs searched. 17,894 Ernest Hemingway titles detected. If you do not know title, select err, or return to err functions menu. Selections from your current err will not be displayed. What in the name of God is this? Wesley whispered. Below the message, the cursor blinked. Above it, in small type, black, not red, was one further instruction. Numeric entry only, no commas or dashes. Your current err, 117586. Wesley felt a strong urge, an err urge, to turn the pink Kindle off and drop it into the silverware drawer, or into the freezer along with the ice cream and Stouffer's frozen dinners. That might be even better. Instead, he used the teeny tiny keypad to enter his birth date. 7-19-1974 would do as well as any number, he reckoned. He hesitated again, then plunged the tip of his index finger down on the select button. 
When the screen blanked this time, he had to fight an impulse to get up from the kitchen chair he was sitting in and back away from the table. A crazy certainty had arisen in his mind. A hand, or perhaps a claw, was going to swim up from the grayness of the Kindle screen, grab him by the throat and yank him in. He would exist forever in computerized grayness, floating around the microchips and between the many worlds of Ur. Then the screen produced type. Plain old prosaic type and the superstitious dread departed. He scanned the Kindle screen, the size of a small paperback, eagerly, although what he was eager for, he had no idea. At the top was the author's full name, Ernest Miller Hemingway, and his dates. Next came a long list of his published works. But it was wrong. The Sun Also Rises was there, For Whom the Bell Tolls, The Short Stories, The Old Man and the Sea, of course, but there were also three or four titles Wesley didn't recognize. And except for minor essays, he thought he had read all of Hemingway's considerable output. Also, he examined the dates again and saw that the death date was wrong. Hemingway had died on July 2nd, 1961, of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. According to the screen, he had gone to that great library in the sky on August 19th, 1964. Birth date's wrong, too, Wesley muttered. He was running his free hand through his hair, pulling it into exotic new shapes. I'm almost sure it is. It should be 1899, not 1897. He moved the cursor down to one of the titles he didn't know, Cortland's Dogs. This was some lunatic computer programmer's idea of a joke. Pretty much had to be. But Cortland's Dogs at least sounded like a Hemingway title. Wesley selected it. The screen blanked, then produced a book cover. The jacket image, in black and white, showed barking dogs surrounding a scarecrow. In the background, shoulders slumped in a posture of weariness or defeat or both, was a hunter with a gun. The eponymous Cortland, surely. In the woods of Upper Michigan, James Cortland deals with the infidelity of his wife and his own mortality. When three dangerous criminals appear at the old Cortland farm, Papa's most famous hero is faced with a terrible choice. Rich in event and symbolism, Ernest Hemingway's final novel was awarded the Pulitzer Prize shortly before his death, $7.50. Below the thumbnail, Kindle asked, Buy this book? Why? N. Total bullshit, Wesley whispered as he highlighted Y and pushed the select button. The screen blanked again, then flashed a new message. Ur novels may not be disseminated as according to all applicable paradox laws. Do you agree? Y. N. Smiling, as befitted someone who got the joke but was going along with it anyway, Wesley selected Y. The screen blanked, then presented new information. Thank you, Wesley. Your Ur novel has been ordered. Your account will be debited $7.50. Remember, Ur novels take longer to download. Allow two to four minutes. Wesley returned to the screen headed Wesley's Kindle. The same items were there. Revolutionary Road, The Old Man in the Sea, The New Oxford American. And he was sure that wouldn't change. There was no Hemingway novel called Cortland's Dogs. Not in this world or any other. Nonetheless, he got up and went to the phone. It was picked up on the first ring. Don Allman, his office mate said, and yes, I was indeed born a rambling man. 
No hollow gym sounds in the background this time, just the barbaric yawps of Don's three sons, who sounded as though they might be dismantling the Almond residence board by board. Don, it's Wesley. Ah, oh, Wesley, I haven't seen you in, gee, it must be three hours. From deeper within the lunatic asylum where Wesley assumed Don lived with his family, there came what sounded like a death scream. Don Almond was not perturbed. Jason, don't throw that at your brother. Be a good little troll and go watch SpongeBob. Then to Wesley, what can I do for you, Wes? Advice on your love life? Tips on improving your sexual performance and stamina? A title for your novel in progress? I have no novel in progress and you know it, Wesley snapped. But it's novels I want to talk about. You know Hemingway's oeuvre, don't you? I love it when you talk dirty. Do you or don't you? Of course, but not as well as you, I hope. You're the 20th century American lit man, after all. I stick to the days when writers wore wigs, took snuff, and said picturesque things like Icard and dumb. What's on your mind? To your knowledge, did Hemingway ever write any fiction about dogs? Don considered while another young child commenced shrieking. Wes, are you okay? You sound a little... Just answer the question, did he or didn't he? Highlight Y or N, Wesley thought. All right, Don said. So far as I can say without consulting my trusty computer, he didn't. I remember him once claiming that Batista Partisans clubbed his pet pooch to death, though. How's that for a factoid? You know, when he was in Cuba. He took it as a sign that he and Mary should beat feet to Florida, and they did post-haste. You don't happen to remember that dog's name, do you? I think I do. I'd want to double-check it on the Internet, but I think it was Cortland. Like the apple? Thanks, Don. His lips felt numb. I'll see you tomorrow. Wes, are you sure you're... Frankie, put that down. Don't... There was a crash. Shit. I think that was Delft. I gotta go, Wes. See you tomorrow. Right. Wesley went back to the kitchen table. He saw that a fresh selection now appeared on the contents page of his Kindle. A novel, or something, called Cortland's Dogs had been downloaded from... Where, exactly? Some other plane of reality called Ur, or possibly you are? 7,191,974? Wesley no longer had the strength to call this idea ridiculous and push it away. He did, however, have enough to go to the refrigerator and get a beer, which he needed. He opened it, drank half in five long swallows, belched. He sat down, feeling a little better. He highlighted his new acquisition. $7.50 would be mighty cheap for an undiscovered Hemingway, he reckoned, and a title page came up. The next page was a dedication, to sigh and to marry with love. Then, this. Chapter One A man's life was five dogs long, Cortland believed. The first was the one that taught you. The second was the one you taught. The third and fourth were the ones you worked. The last was the one that outlived you. That was the winter dog. Cortland's winter dog had no name. He thought of it only as the scarecrow dog. Liquid rose up in Wesley's throat. He ran for the sink, bent over it, and struggled to keep the beer down. 
His gorge settled, and instead of turning on the water to rinse puke down the drain, he cupped his hands under the flow and splashed it on his sweaty skin. That was better. Then he went back to the Kindle and stared down at it. A man's life was five dogs long, Cortland believed. Somewhere, at some college a lot more ambitious than Moore of Kentucky, there was a computer program to read books and identify the writers by their stylistic ticks and tocks, which were supposed to be as unique as fingerprints or snowflakes. Wesley had a vague recollection that this computer program had been used to identify the author of a pseudonymous novel called Primary Colors. The program had whiffled through thousands of writers in a matter of hours or days and had come up with a news magazine columnist named Joe Klein, who later owned up to his literary paternity. Wesley thought that if he submitted Cortland's dogs to that computer, it would spit out Ernest Hemingway's name. In truth, he didn't think he needed a computer. He picked up the Kindle with hands that were now shaking badly. What are you? he asked. The Kindle did not answer. Three. Wesley refuses to go mad. In a real dark night of the soul, Scott Fitzgerald had said, it is always three o'clock in the morning, day after day. At three o'clock on that Tuesday morning, Wesley lay feverishly awake, wondering if he might be cracking up himself. He had forced himself to turn off the pink Kindle and put it back in his briefcase an hour ago, but its hold over him remained every bit as strong as it had been at midnight when he had still been deep in the Ur Books menu. He had searched for Ernest Hemingway in two dozen of the Kindle's almost ten and a half million Urs, and had come up with at least twenty novels he had never heard of. In one of the Urs, it happened to be 6,201,949, which, when broken down, was his mother's birth date, Hemingway appeared to be a crime writer. Wesley had downloaded a title called it's blood, my darling, and discovered your basic dime novel. But written in staccato, punchy sentences, he would have recognized anywhere. Hemingway sentences. And even as a crime writer, Hemingway had departed from gang wars and cheating gore-happy Debs long enough to write A Farewell to Arms. He always wrote A Farewell to Arms, it seemed. Other titles came and went, but A Farewell to Arms was always there and the old man in the sea was usually there. He tried Faulkner. Faulkner was not there at all, in any of the Urs. He checked the regular menu and discovered that Faulkner was not available in what he was coming to think of as his reality either, at least not in Kindle editions. Only a few books about American literature's count no count. He checked Roberto Bolano, the author of 2666, and although it wasn't available from the normal Kindle menu, it was listed in several Ur Books submenus. So were other Bolano novels, including, in Ur 101, a book with the colorful title Marilyn Blows Fidel. He almost downloaded that one, then changed his mind. So many authors, so many Urs, so little time. A part of his mind distant yet authentically terrified, continued to insist it was all an elaborate joke which had arisen from some degenerate computer programmer's lunatic imagination. 
Yet the evidence, which he continued to compile as that long night progressed, suggested otherwise. James Kane, for instance. In one er, Wesley checked, he had died exceedingly young, producing only two books, Nightfall, a new one, and Mildred Pierce, an oldie. Wesley would have bet on The Postman Always Rings Twice to have been a Kane constant, his er novel, so to speak, but no. Although he checked a dozen errs for Kane, he found Postman only once. Mildred Pierce, on the other hand, which he considered very minor Kane indeed, was always there, like a farewell to arms. He had checked his own name and discovered what he feared. Although the errs were lousy with Wesley Smith's, one appeared to be a writer of westerns, another the author of porno novels, such as Hot Tub Honey, none seemed to be him. Of course, it was hard to be 100% sure, but it appeared that he had stumbled on 10.4 million alternate realities, and he was an unpublished loser in all of them. Wide awake in his bed, listening to one lonely dog bark in the distance, Wesley began to shiver. His own literary aspirations seemed very minor to him at this moment. What seemed major, what loomed over his life and very sanity, were the riches hidden within that slim pink panel of plastic. He thought of all the writers whose passing he had mourned, from Norman Mailer and Saul Bellow to Donald Westlake and Evan Hunter. One after another, Thanatos stilled the magic voices and they spoke no more. But now, they could. They could speak to him. He threw back the bedclothes. The Kindle was calling him, not in a human voice, but in an organic one. It sounded like a beating heart, Poe's telltale heart, coming from inside his briefcase instead of from under the floorboards, and... Poe! Good God! He had never checked Poe! He had left his briefcase in its accustomed spot beside his favorite chair. He hurried to it, opened it, grabbed the Kindle, and plugged it in. No way he was going to risk running down the battery. He hurried to Ur Books, typed in Poe's name, and on his first try found an Ur, 2,555,676, where Poe had lived until 1875, instead of dying in 1849 at the age of 40. And this version of Poe had written novels, six of them. Greed filled Wesley's heart, his mostly kind heart, as his eyes raced over the titles. One was called... The House of Shame, or Degradation's Price. Wesley downloaded it. The charge for this one was only $4.95, and read until dawn. Then he turned off the pink Kindle, put his head in his arms, and slept for two hours at the kitchen table. He also dreamed. No images, only words. Titles. Endless lines of titles, many of them undiscovered masterpieces, as many titles as there were stars in the sky. He got through Tuesday and Wednesday somehow, but during his intro to American Lit class on Thursday, lack of sleep and overexcitement caught up with him, not to mention his increasingly tenuous hold on reality. Halfway through his Mississippi lecture, which he usually gave with a high degree of cogency about how Hemingway was downriver from Twain and almost all of 20th century American fiction was downriver from Hemingway, he realized he was telling the class that Papa had never written a great story about dogs, but if he had lived, he surely would have. Something more nutritious than Marley and me, he said, and laughed with unnerving good cheer. He turned from the blackboard 
and saw twenty-two pairs of eyes looking at him with varying degrees of concern, perplexity, and amusement. He heard a whisper, low, but as clear as the beating of the old man's heart to the ears of Poe's mad narrator. Smithy's losing it. Smithy wasn't, but there could be no doubt that he was in danger of losing it. I refuse, he thought. I refuse, I refuse, and realized to his horror that he was actually muttering this under his breath. The Henderson kid, who sat in the first row, had heard it. Mr. Smith? A hesitation. Sir, are you all right? Yes, he said. No, a touch of the bug, maybe. Poe's gold bug, he thought, and barely restrained himself from bursting into wild cackles. Class dismissed. Go on, get out of here. And as they scrambled for the door, he had presence of mind enough to add, Raymond Carver next week, don't forget where I'm calling from. And thought, what else is there by Raymond Carver in the worlds of Ur? Is there one or a dozen or a thousand where he quit smoking, lived to be 70, and wrote another half a dozen books? He sat down at his desk, reached for his briefcase with the pink Kindle inside, then pulled his hand back. He reached again, stopped himself again, and moaned. It was like a drug or a sexual obsession. Thinking of that made him think of Ellen Silverman, something he hadn't done since discovering the Kindle's hidden menus. For the first time since she'd walked out, Ellen had completely slipped his mind. Ironic, isn't it? Now I'm reading off the computer, Ellen, and I can't stop. I refuse to spend the rest of the day looking into that thing, he said, and I refuse to go mad. I refuse to look, and I refuse to go mad. To look or go mad. I refuse both. I... But the pink Kindle was in his hand. He had taken it out even as he had been denying its power over him. When had he done that? And did he really intend to sit here in this empty classroom mooning over it? Mr. Smith? The voice startled him so badly that he dropped the Kindle on his desk. He snatched it up at once and examined it, terrified it might be broken. But it was all right. Thank God. I didn't mean to startle you. It was the Henderson kid, standing in the doorway and looking concerned. This didn't surprise Wesley much. If I saw me right now, I'd probably be concerned too. Oh, you didn't startle me, Wesley said. This obvious lie struck him as funny, and he gave voice to a glassy giggle. He clapped his hand over his mouth to hold it in. What's wrong? The Henderson kid took a step inside. I think it's more than a virus. Man, you look awful. Did you get bad news or something? Wesley almost told him to mind his business, peddle his papers, put an egg in his shoe, and beat it. But then the terrified part of him that had been cowering in the farthest corner of his brain, insisting that the pink Kindle was a prank or the opening gambit of some elaborate con, decided to stop hiding and start acting. If you really refuse to go mad, you better do something about this, it said. So how about it? What's your first name, Mr. Henderson? It's entirely slipped my mind. The kid smiled, a pleasant smile, but the concern was still in his eyes. Robert, sir, Robbie. Well, Robbie, I'm Wes, and I want to show you something. Either you will see nothing, which means I'm deluded and very likely suffering a nervous breakdown, or you will see something that completely blows your mind, but not here. Come to my office, would you? Henderson tried to ask questions as they crossed the mediocre quad. Wesley shook them off, but he was glad Robbie Henderson had come back 
and glad that the terrified part of his mind had taken the initiative and spoken up. He felt better about the Kindle, safer than he had since discovering the hidden menus. In a fantasy story, Robbie Henderson would see nothing, and the protagonist would decide he was going insane, or had already gone. Reality seemed to be different. His reality, at least. Wesley Smith's. Err. I actually want it to be a delusion, because if it is, and if with this young man's help I can recognize it as such, I'm sure I can avoid going mad, and I refuse to go mad. You're muttering, sir? Robbie said. Wes, I mean. Sorry. You're scaring me a little. I'm also scaring me a little. Don Allman was in the office, wearing headphones, correcting papers, and singing about Jeremiah the Bullfrog in a voice that went beyond the borders of merely bad and into the unexplored country of the execrable. He shut off his iPod when he saw Wesley. I thought you had class. Canceled it. This is Robert Henderson, one of my American Lit students. Robbie, Henderson said, extending his hand. Hello, Robbie, I'm Don Allman, one of the Allman brothers. I play a mean tuba. Robbie laughed politely and shook Don Allman's hand. Until that moment, Wesley had planned on asking Don to leave, thinking one witness to his mental collapse would be enough. But maybe this was that rare case where the more really was the merrier. Need some privacy? Don asked. No, Wesley said. Stay. I want to show you guys something. And if you see nothing and I see something, I'll be delighted to check into Central State Psychiatric. He opened his briefcase. Whoa, Robbie exclaimed. A pink Kindle, sweet. I've never seen one of those before. Now I'm going to show you something else that you've never seen before, Wesley said. At least, I think I am. He plugged in the Kindle and turned it on. What convinced Don Allman was the collected works of William Shakespeare from Ur 17,000. After downloading it at Don's request, because in this particular Ur, Shakespeare had died in 1620 instead of 1616, the three men discovered two new plays. One was titled Two Ladies of Hampshire, a comedy that seemed to have been written soon after Julius Caesar. The other was a tragedy called A Black Fellow in London, written in 1619. Wesley opened this one and then, with some reluctance, handed Don the Kindle. Don Allman was ordinarily a ruddy-cheeked guy who smiled a lot, but as he paged through Acts 1 and 2 of A Black Fellow in London, he lost both his smile and his color. After 20 minutes, during which Wesley and Robbie sat watching him silently, he pushed the Kindle back to Wesley. He did it with the tips of his fingers, as if he really didn't want to touch it at all. So, Wesley asked, what's the verdict? It could be an imitation, Don said, but of course, there have always been scholars who claim that Shakespeare's plays weren't written by Shakespeare. They're supporters of Christopher Marlowe, Francis Bacon, even the Earl of Derby. Yeah, and James Fry wrote Macbeth, Wesley said. What do you think? I think this could be authentic Willie, Don said. He sounded on the verge of tears, or laughter, maybe both. I think it's far too elaborate to be a joke. And if it's a hoax, I have no idea how it works. 
He reached a finger to the Kindle, touched it lightly, then pulled it away. I'd have to study both plays closely with reference works at hand to be more definite, but it's got his lil. Robbie Henderson, it turned out, had read almost all of John D. MacDonald's mystery and suspense novels. In the Ur 2,171,753 listing of MacDonald's works, he found 17 novels in what was called the Dave Higgins series. All the titles had colors in them. That part's right, Robbie said, but the titles are all wrong, and John D.'s series character was named Travis McGee, not Dave Higgins. Wesley downloaded one called The Blue Lament, hitting his credit card with another $4.50 charge, and pushed the Kindle over to Robbie once the book had been downloaded to the ever-growing library that was Wesley's Kindle. While Robbie read, at first from the beginning and then skipping around, Don went down to the main office and brought back three coffees. Before settling in behind his desk, he hung the little-used Conference in Progress Do Not Disturb sign on the door. Robbie looked up, nearly as pale as Don had been, after dipping into the never-written Shakespeare play about the African prince who is brought to London in chains. This is a lot like a Travis McGee novel called Pale Gray for Guilt, he said. Only Travis McGee lives in Fort Lauderdale, and this guy Higgins lives in Sarasota. McGee has a friend named Meyer, a guy, and Higgins has a friend named Sarah... He bent over the Kindle for a moment. Sarah Mayer. He looked at Wesley, his eyes showing too much white around the irises. Jesus Christ, and there's ten million of these... These other worlds? Ten million four hundred thousand and some, according to the Ur Books menu, Wesley said. I think exploring even one author fully would take more years than you have left in your life, Robbie. I could die today, Robbie Henderson said in a low voice. That thing could give me a freaking heart attack. He abruptly seized his styrofoam cup of coffee and swallowed most of the contents, although the coffee was still steaming. Wesley, on the other hand, felt almost like himself again. But with the fear of madness removed, a host of questions were cramming his mind. Only one seemed completely relevant. So what do I do now? For one thing, Don said, this has to stay a dead secret among the three of us. He turned to Robbie. Can you keep a secret? Say no and I'll have to kill you. I can keep one. But how about to you, Wes? Can they keep a secret? Will they? How do I know that when I don't know who they are? What credit card did you use when you ordered Little Pink here? MasterCard, it's the only one I use these days. Robbie pointed to the English Department computer terminal Wesley and Don shared. Go online, why don't you, and check your account. If those, those herb books came from Amazon, I'll be very surprised. Where else could they have come from? Wesley asked. It's their gadget. They sell the books for it. Also, it came in an Amazon box. It had the smile on it. And did they sell their gadget in glow stick pink? Robbie asked. Well, no. Dude, check your credit card account. Wesley drummed his fingers on Don's Mighty Mouse mouse pad as the office's outdated PC cogitated. Then he sat up straight and began to read. Well, 
Don asked. Sure. According to this, Wesley said, my latest MasterCard purchase was a blazer from Men's Warehouse a week ago. No downloaded books. Not even the ones you ordered the normal way, the old man in the sea and Revolutionary Road? Nope. Robbie asked, what about the Kindle itself? Wesley scrolled back. Nothing, nothing, not. Wait, here. He leaned forward until his nose was almost touching the screen. I'll be damned. What? Don and Robbie said it together. According to this, my purchase was denied. It says wrong credit card number. He considered. That could be. I'm always reversing two of the digits. Sometimes even when I had the damn card right beside the keyboard, I'm a little dyslexic. But the order went through anyway, Don said thoughtfully. Somehow, to someone, somewhere. What er does the Kindle say we're in? Refresh me on that. Wesley went back to the relevant screen. 117,586. Only to enter that as a choice, you omit the comma. Don said, that might 